Welcome to a special episode of the ASSP Safety Standards and Tech Pubs podcast. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. COVID-19 is presenting unprecedented challenges to employers and safety professionals to protect the health and safety of their workers, as well as how to keep their businesses running during this crisis. There are, however, steps that employers can take to assess their risks, protect their workers, and be better prepared to address these types of situations in the future. Here with me to discuss some of those steps is Michael Serpy, president of Safety First NA Incorporated. We would also like to note before we begin that the information shared in this podcast is based on the data that were available from trusted sources and the phase of response in the U.S. on April 3, 2020. As the situation continues to change rapidly, please refer to current guidance from your local or state public health organization. And with that, I'll uh, bring on Michael. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. You guys really do a great service with these podcasts, and we're happy to be a part of it. This COVID-19 pandemic has really got a lot of people concerned, and rightly so. It's already having a profound effect on businesses, families, and individuals, unfortunately, and it appears to be far from over. Uh, absolutely. Now, as I mentioned at the top, COVID-19 is challenging both employers and safety professionals alike to ensure that they're taking the proper measures to protect their workforce. Now, one part of this process is conducting a risk assessment to identify each employee's level of risk for contracting the virus. Now, how can employers and safety professionals work to identify each employee's level of risk as well as high exposure sources? Well, one thing all employers can do is check out all the great resources available at OSHA, NIOSH, and the CDC. OSHA just recently came out with a COVID-19 employer's guide, which is very helpful. And that's titled Guidance on Preparing Workplaces for COVID-19. One thing that OSHA has done with their guide, which is a nice approach, is they created a pyramid model illustrating the employee's level of risk. The pyramid includes four designations of employee COVID-19 exposure risk level with individual worker risk levels categorized from low risk all the way up to very high risk. In the OSHA guide, those designations are given in the form of simple definitions, which include occupation examples. So it'll be easy for an employer to determine and know which category their employees and their company will fall. Once the employee's COVID-19 risk level is determined, then the employer can better prepare the appropriate work procedures needed to control that level of risk. Here's how the OSHA uh, uh, website explains how to access and determine um, the employee's level of risk of acquiring COVID-19 occupationally. First, the level of risk depends in part on the industry type, the need for contact within six feet of people known to be or suspected of being infected with COVID-19, or the requirement for repeated or extended contact with persons known to be or suspected of being infected with COVID-19. A, a bit of good news is that for most regular manufacturers and construction companies, they're going to fall under the definition of low-risk exposure for employees. Um, the OSHA COVID-19 occupational risk graphic shows the four exposure risk levels in the shape of a pyramid to represent the probable distribution of risk. OSHA states, incorrectly so, that most American workers will likely fall into the lower exposure risk category or medium exposure risk level. So let's touch on OSHA's categories of risk exposure beginning with the very high risk exposure occupations. 
Very high exposure risk jobs are those with high potential for exposure to known or suspected sources of COVID-19, which can occur during specific medical, post-mortem, or laboratory procedures. So it's really mostly for um, employees that are involved in, in uh, healthcare type jobs. For workers in that category, OSHA provides three occupation examples. The first one is healthcare workers, and that includes doctors, nurses, dentists, paramedics, emergency medical technicians, um, if they're performing aerosol generating procedures uh, on unknown or suspected COVID-19 patients. Uh, also, the second one is healthcare or laboratory personnel collecting or handling specimens from known or suspected COVID-19 patients. And then the third one is morgue workers performing autopsies, which generally involve aerosol generating procedures on the bodies of people who are known to have or suspected of having COVID-19 at the time of their death. Then you've got high exposure risk jobs. That's the next level down. And that's defined as those with high potential for exposure to known or suspected sources of COVID-19. So workers in that category include healthcare delivery and support staff. So again, doctors, nurses, and other hospital staff that have to enter patients' rooms, exposed to known or suspected COVID-19 patients, um, uh, uh, except when uh, those workers are performing aerosol-generating procedures, then their exposure reverts back to the very high level. Uh, also, medical transport workers, and that includes things like ambulance vehicle operators, um, um, patient handlers, those kinds of things, um, that are moving or suspected um, uh, COVID-19 patients in an enclosed vehicle. They're also at high risk. The third example they give is um, mortuary workers that would be involved in preparing the bodies of people for burial or cremation that were known to have or suspected of having the COVID-19 virus at the time of their deaths. Um, but that's you know kind of a small sector of employees. The next two levels is gonna encompass the greater majority of, of workers. So then the next level is medium exposure risk jobs. And those include uh, those jobs that require frequent or close contact, which is uh, de you know, defined to be within six feet of people who may be infected with the, with the COVID-19 virus, but who are not known or suspected of being COVID-19 patients at the time. In areas where there is ongoing community transmission, workers within that category may have contact with the general public. And the examples they give for that are schools, high population density work environments, some high volume retail settings. So that's gonna include things like grocery stores, banks, parcel shipping facilities, um, et cetera. And then you've got the lower risk exposure and they define that as caution level exposure risk. And so those are jobs that do not require contact with people known to be or suspected of being infected with the COVID-19 virus, um, or they don't also, they don't have frequent contact with the general public. So workers in that category have minimal occupational contact with the public um, and maybe even other co-workers. So the low risk level category is gonna include a lot of manufacturing jobs, especially where an employee is like a machine operator where machines are big and they're spaced apart and they're working at those machines you know, pretty much by themselves. It also could include some construction jobs, for example, like a tuck pointer or maybe a painter or an electrician, especially when the tradesperson is working on their own. Okay, now staying on that subject, once every employee's risk level has been identified, how can employers best utilize that information to protect the health of their employees? Uh, in other words, what should be the next steps following that risk assessment? 
That's a very good and important question, Scott. In fact, it might be the most important question for employers to answer. Um, the answer to that is a lot. Um, so let's talk about resources first, then I'll briefly discuss specific steps or elements which employers should consider to include in their programs. One thing we mentioned, which I think is very important, is the quality and reliability of information employers are using to help us deal with this pandemic. We should emphasize that the most reliable information sources employers have available in the United States is coming from OSHA and NIOSH. So therefore, two things I would definitely start with would be, number one, reviewing OSHA's guidance on preparing workplaces for COVID-19. That's that OSHA 3990 guide we were mentioning, and as we've been discussing for determining employees' level of risk, and also check out what NIOSH developed and published, and that's the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health. NIOSH is a great COVID-19 webpage. The NIOSH guidance is very well organized into four major U.S. employment sectors, the first and most widely applicable section covers recommendations um, and linked web pages for businesses. One of those links is called Interim Guidance for Business and Employers to Plan and Respond to Coronavirus Disease 2019. Employers in construction and manufacturing should use that section. Then they also have uh, three additional sections, uh, one covering healthcare settings, another one for laboratories, and then finally another one for transportation. Um, the NIOSH COVID-19 webpage business section, though, is probably the one most folks will need, especially those in construction and manufacturing. Uh, the NIOSH business section is geared towards non-healthcare work settings, which is probably the majority of, of work settings. So if I was a manufacturer or construction employer, I definitely would check out and follow the guidance provided on that webpage. Uh, just to mention, NIOSH is uh, continually updating this page as we learn more about COVID-19. For example, their most recent update to the business guide included changes, um, which those changes are updates, as of March 21, 2020. And in that update, they updated their recommendations for cleaning and disinfecting guidance, which what they're recommending right now is routinely cleaning and disinfecting all frequently touched surfaces in the workplace such as workstations, keyboards, telephones, handrails, and doorknobs. If surfaces are dirty, they should be cleaned using a detergent or soap and water prior to disinfection. So just understand there's a, a little differentiation between cleaning and disinfecting. Um, but for disinfection, most uh, common EPA-registered household disinfectants should be effective. And the EPA has a list of uh, what they uh, recommend for household disinfectant products. And uh, that includes things like uh, Purell and some uh, Lysol products. Um, but there's a list of products that the EPA uh, approved uh, to use against the virus is available uh, on, on their webpage that they have for that. So um, when you're using those products, follow the manufacturer's instructions for cleaning and disinfection. And that's things like concentration and then application method and contact time. So those are important considerations. Another thing is discourage workers from using other workers' phones, desks, offices, or other work tools and equipment when possible. If necessary, clean and disinfect them before and after use. Then provide disposable wipes so that commonly used surfaces, for example, doorknobs, keyboards, remote controls, desks, or other work tools, uh, surfaces, and equipment can be wiped down on employees before and after each use. Um, which sounds pretty rigorous, but uh, you know this is the recommended advice. Uh, next is uh, they updated their best practices for conducting 
uh, social distancing at work um, and also social distancing in general. So they're recommending avoiding large gatherings and maintaining distance of approximately six feet from others when possible. And that would include you know, areas like break rooms and cafeterias. And then strategies that businesses could use for that include implementing flexible work shifts, um, and, which includes telework, um, implementing flexible work hours, which they're talking about uh, staggered shifts to reduce the amount of employees present at any given time in the facility, um, increasing physical space between employees at the work site where feasible, increasing physical space between employees and customers for like drive-through operations, you know, having partitions and things, implementing flexible meeting and travel options like postponing non-essential meetings and events, um, possibly downsizing operations, uh, delivering services remotely, um, either through the phone, video, or through the web, and delivering products through curbside pickup or delivery. So not only should employers check out their website, they should continue to check it for those helpful updates. Remember, we're still learning a lot about COVID-19, and there's things that we either still don't know, and there's also things that we're not exactly sure about that maybe we think we know some things of. Uh, anyway, I would recommend checking out the, the Centers for Disease Control COVID-19 webpage in addition to the NIOSH webpage. I also think we should mention that folks should know that the NIOSH and the CDC have done a remarkable job in identifying many procedures and precautions employers can take. They also have many instructional posters, which employers can print and post in the workplace. Two really good ones for COVID-19. Uh, one is the employer instructional poster for proper hand washing procedures. Then they have another one for proper application of hand sanitizer. So what employers should do is, is um, find those posters on the CDC and then print them and post them in the workplace near their hand washing facilities and their hand sanitizing facilities. So the instructions are right there. So employees use them properly and then wash their hands properly. So those are some resources employers can check out. But now let's talk a little bit about specific measures employers should take to prepare themselves for this new pandemic reality. Uh, really, I think every employer in America is already being or is going to be affected by this current pandemic. And what OSHA is recommending in their guide is that each employer develop and implement what's known as an infectious disease preparedness and, and uh, prevention response plan. So OSHA covers that recommendation in their guide starting on page seven. Um, the amount of planning and implementation for one of these plans is usually going to be very comprehensive. So that's something that we, you know, we've been helping our clients out with. These infectious disease preparedness and prevention response plans are something that every employer should have. And I think that every employer already needs or is going to need. Just like, for example, um, a, a company's written emergency action plan. So this is going to be another written plan that employers are using. And it could either be an adjunct of their existing emergency action plan or it could be a standalone plan. Um, but really, um, employers should understand that there's a lot of items to consider for these plans. So one thing that, that could help would be to recommend that employers develop one of these preparedness uh, response plan checklists to help make sure they're not missing any critical elements. A couple of basic things which employers should do and which OSHA recommends is employer COVID-19 plans should consider and address the levels of risk associated with various work sites and job task workers perform at those sites. And those considerations include things like where, how, and what sources of uh, COVID-19 workers might be exposed to, including the examples we've been talking about, like the general public, customers, uh, even coworkers. 
and then also uh, uh, consider sick individuals or those particularly at high risk for infection. So, you know, that's going to include things like international travelers who have visited uh, these hot spots that they're talking about, um, healthcare workers who've had unprotected exposures to people known or suspected of having COVID-19. OSHA also recommends including a section on non-occupational risk factors at home and in community settings, which I think is a good idea to include. That's going to help employees know how to keep themselves safe off the job and also how to keep their homes and families safe. Also, employers should try to identify vulnerable workers. So we know right now that that includes employees who are of older age or have the presence of chronic medical conditions, including immunocompromising conditions and also pregnancy. And that's just for starters. A few additional items we should mention include that companies could form a COVID-19 management and employee planning team, develop employee pandemic education plans, identify all essential business functions and services that have to be kept going, identify critical suppliers and vendors so you can keep those, uh, those streams going, develop response plans for employee material work and demand shortages, which is something that you know companies are either already experiencing but also could anticipate, review and or modify current policies on sick leave, tele telework, uh, return to work policies, and then acquire critical supply items. And that could include um, you know, supplies for production and also uh, supplies for cleaning and disinfecting. Also establish trigger points to plan uh, activation based on scenarios covering employee absenteeism. And then once these plans are developed, they should be reviewed by senior management and then they should be revised and updated as needed. Of course, just speaking generally, three things that employers should get started with right away include setting up social distancing at work, provide adequate and ample hand washing and hand sanitizing facilities, and procedures to prevent sick employees from coming to work and for identifying employees with symptoms at work who need to be immediately sent home. Okay, great. That's uh, a lot of really, really great guidance. Uh, now, switching gears a little bit to contingency planning now. Employers of all sizes are having to consider and make decisions about if and how they can continue operations amidst this growing crisis. So what are some of the best options for business continuity and how can different employers determine what may be the best option for them? Well, Scott, that is certainly true. Uh, right now, I think a lot of businesses are doing whatever they can just to survive on a day-to-day -day basis. Some of the contingencies for companies to be aware of and utilize include applying to obtain relief funds, which are being made available due to this crisis. Um, there's programs available now through the Federal Small Business Administration. Um, they've been in the news lately too. Um, their homepage is sba.gov. So in particular, one SBA loan program is called COVID-19 Paycheck Protection Program Loan. Also some cities such as the city of Chicago also have a COVID-19 business loan program called Chicago Small Business Resiliency Fund. Another place companies can go for help is through their local chambers of commerce. They also have resiliency fund access resources and can help answer questions about those loan programs. So those are one type of contingency actions that companies can take right now to help them stay afloat by getting their hands on some available funds. Also, employers should take a look at customers, contractor, and visitor policies. I know for our company, uh, most of our clients either have postponed or canceled on-site training. 
which for us is a mainstay of our business. But we understand because right now companies should limit employee contact with outsiders, and that includes things like consultants and salespeople, etc. Uh, directly related to that issue, companies should develop and implement COVID-19 contractor visitor questionnaires to characterize the status of the health of contractors uh, to exclude potential high-risk exposures, say, from a contractor who recently traveled to a COVID-19 hotspot or something like that. Another contingency employers are being forced to deal with right now are, are these stay-at-home orders issued by states. For example, in Illinois, the governor issued an executive order in response to COVID-19, which requires all individuals currently living within the state of Illinois are ordered to stay home or at their place of residence and um, include stay-at-home, social distancing requirements, and essential business and operations requirements. That order states that non-essential business operations must cease for this stipulated duration. In that order, the definition of essential and non-essential businesses are given. So essential businesses are categorized in the executive order, and those include things like essential infrastructure, and those examples include, our, but not limited to, food production, distribution, and sale, construction, including but not limited to instruction, construction required in response to this public health emergency, for example, hospital construction, construction of long-term health care facilities, public works construction, and housing construction, um, buildings management and maintenance operations, airport operations, operations and maintenance of utilities. Then they've got another category called essential governmental functions. That includes essential governmental functions uh, like first responders, emergency management personnel, emergency dispatchers, court personnel, law enforcement, and includes contractors performing essential governmental functions. Then they've got another category that identifies essential businesses and operations. Essential businesses and operations examples include stores that sell groceries and medicine, food, beverage, and cannabis production and agriculture operations, organizations that provide charitable and social services, media outlets, gas stations, businesses needed for transportation, financial institutions, hardware and supply stores, and then critical trades, which they identify building and construction tradesmen, tradeswomen, other trades, including but not limited to plumbers, electricians, etc. To meet these requirements, companies should determine if they're covered as essential businesses or determine which of their operations are essential business functions and services. For example, business contractors that provide public utility field support services or companies that make parts to support public utilities are considered essential and critical to support those utilities. So first, businesses should try to find out if they're included as essential businesses or support an essential business by carefully reviewing their state's COVID-19 executive orders and additional declarations and publications. Now, the best place I've found to found all that information, which includes webpage links, is probably at the webpage called COVID-19 Resources for State Leaders, uh, the Council of State Governments. And so that is a good webpage. That list um, is organized state by state. And for each state, they, they list all the links for COVID-19 executive orders, school closings, public health mandates, etc. So if you're an essential business or your operations support an essential business or function, some of those businesses could maintain or even increase their operations as a result of those critical resources that they're providing right now. 
On the other hand, some types of businesses are specifically prohibited from operating at this time. In Illinois, those include all places of public amusement, such as bowling alleys, movie theaters, amusement rides, carnivals, amusement parks, water parks, aquariums, zoos, museums, arcades, uh, fairs, children's play centers, and concert venues. Um, those type of companies, unfortunately, are going to be hardest hit right now um, because they, they have large gatherings uh, as part of their business. An additional contingency employers must plan for is increased absenteeism. In a pandemic, OSHA indicates that companies could see up to 40% employee absenteeism. So a couple of things companies can do to address absenteeism includes cross-training employees. So you can move folks around to cover jobs where someone's absent from a particular job. And then another possibility to mitigate absenteeism is establishing telecommuting where employees can get set up to work from home. Well, working from home can involve setting up a company computer network to include employees' laptops or home computers. A lot of companies have either already uh, are, are doing uh, telecommuting or in the process of setting up telecommuting where it's feasible. Two other contingencies we should mention that are extremely important include developing response plans for employee material and work demand shortages, and that can include maintaining supply chains, identifying alternative sources of raw materials, or increasing inventory levels to guard against future supply chain disruptions. And another thing would be to acquire critical supply items. And that could include stocking up on things like hand sanitizer, cleaning, and disinfecting agents, which of course we've heard so much about and we know that some of those are in short supply right now. Um, but yeah, that can you know be challenging because of that short supply. Right, absolutely. Now, on, on that note, given the nature of certain businesses and industries, some companies will have to keep workers on site during this crisis and as such have proper controls in place to help them stay healthy. And this is where the hierarchy of controls comes in. So I thought we could talk through the hierarchy of controls in the context of COVID-19 and specific steps that employers and safety professionals can take to protect the safety and health of workers on different job sites. Well, yes, Scott. Uh, OSHA's COVID-19 guide is based on and focuses on OSHA's hierarchy of controls. Hierarchy implies choice, where we range from most effective choice to the least effective. Many safety professionals and others know about that concept, and for COVID-19, it's no different. The hierarchy of controls starts with all feasible engineering controls. Next comes administrative controls. Next is work practice controls. And then finally, personal protective equipment which is also known as PPE. For COVID-19, it's important to note that OSHA states right now for low-risk companies that they do not at this time recommend any additional specific engineering controls, and they also don't recommend any additional PPE for low-risk category jobs. But what they do recommend is setting up enhanced COVID-19 administrative and work practice controls. So this is gonna include uh, medium-risk employers and also low-risk employer categories. So right now, COVID-19 uh, OSHA administrative controls for those categories include things like encouraging sick workers to stay home, minimizing contact among workers, clients, and customers by replacing face-to-face -face meetings with virtual communications, and implementing telework uh, if and where feasible. Next is establishing alternating days or extra shifts that reduce the total number of employees in a facility at a given time allowing them to maintain distance from one another while they're at the facility. And that would be while trying to maintain a full on-site work week. 
Um, and then the next thing they talk about is discontinuing non-essential travel, especially to locations with ongoing COVID-19 outbreaks. Uh, additional measures that uh, should include no sharing of hand tools or computers where different people are touching items without first disinfecting them. Also establishing where feasible social distancing at work where folks try to keep at least six feet apart. Uh, COVID-19 OSHA work practice controls include things like providing resources in a work environment that promotes personal hygiene. For example, providing tissues, um, and that would be at workstations and like on tables in the lunchroom, for example. Um, getting no-touch trash cans where you can throw used tissues uh, away without having to touch the trash can. Like it uh, doesn't have one of those uh, push lids, for example. It's got a, a foot-operated uh, lid. Um, providing hand soap and then providing alcohol-based rubs, which any alcohol-based rub that's at least 60% alcohol, uh, the CDC has identified as being effective. And then obtaining disinfectants and using them, obtaining disposable towels for workers to clean their work surfaces with, requiring regular hand washing or using alcohol-based hand rubs. Um, and for that, workers should always try to wash hands when they're visibly soiled and also after removing any personal protective equipment. And then um, when we talked about those posters, post those hand-washing signs in the restrooms or wherever those hand-washing facilities might be located. Additional work practice controls requiring employees only to cough or sneeze either into a tissue, which they immediately throw away, or into the cuff of their elbow, which can help uh, avoid uh, droplets from being uh, moved through the air when somebody coughs or sneezes. So another one setting up a COVID-19 cleaning schedule at work where high-touch surfaces are cleaned on a regular and frequent basis, such as daily, before use, after use, or whatever the specific item calls for based on its actual use. So high-touch items include things like door handles, phones, remote controls, light switches, and bathroom fixtures. Also, don't forget about um, horizontal surfaces such as uh, assembly tables, countertops, kitchen tables, desktops, and other places where cough droplets could uh, and do uh, frequently land. Definitely. One thing you really emphasize is developing a disaster plan that includes pandemic preparedness. How can employers and safety professionals integrate that type of preparedness into their current disaster planning to help ensure that they have the appropriate measures in place should a similar situation happen in the future? Well, uh, two approaches could include either expanding the current facility emergency action plan you know, to include pandemics, um, particularly the current COVID-19 one, um, or it might be better to set up a separate policy on infectious disease prevention. From what I've learned, there are so many moving parts to these infectious disease prevention plans and everything that could and should be considered. It might be better and to make more sense to establish a separate policy. Sure. Um, uh, anything else you'd uh, like to add about the steps safety professionals and employers can take to address this crisis as, uh, as we wrap up? Well, yes, yeah, Scott, there is. Uh, in this format, we simply cannot cover all the bases, but companies incorporating COVID-19 control and prevention procedures need to include training of their employees. I recommend to the extent feasible, both computer-based or classroom training, which accounts for worker work social distancing. Um, one level of training would be for all employees. Then an additional level of training for supervisors and managers who will be charged with establishing and implementing these programs. Um, and then another thing would just be to uh, get some help in developing the company's written programs. We found that 
these programs, once you get into them, they're quite comprehensive because there's so many considerations. These programs include a lot of items that we didn't even get a chance to touch on in this podcast. In fact, we just completed a company's COVID-19 infectious disease prevention policy draft, which included 25 separate sections and six appendices. And that was for a medium-sized company that only has one location, but they do have field operations, which of course you need different procedures for both. Okay. Uh, thank you uh, so much again for uh, coming on, Michael. I uh, hope our listeners will think about how they can take these steps and apply them at their organization as they work to protect their workforce and help ensure that they're prepared for similar crises in the future. So thank you again. Oh, sure. Thank you very much, Scott, for having me. I hope the information was useful. You can find additional information and resources about how you can help prevent the spread of COVID-19 at assp.org coronavirus. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode of the ASSP Safety Standards and Tech Pubs podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org and follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.